November 11th, and you're back on another edition of Kentucky Politics Weekly. I'm your host, Trey Watson. Uh, glad to be joined today by uh, my college friend, baseball teammate, and head of the UK Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise, Chuck Cordemont. Chuck, how you doing, buddy? Doing good, Trey. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Uh, before we get started with, with the political news that uh, we were just talking about before we started, uh, I said that Chuck and I played uh, baseball at center, uh, both of us coach. In the uh, the Eastern Little League here in Lexington, um, so a news of interest just coming across the wire today. Uh, bizarrely, the Atlantic League, where the Lexington Legends play, are are going to now field a second team in Lexington for next season. Uh, it's unclear as to whether or not they'll be around for the season after that because it has to do with there's an imbalance of the schedule. There's a new team entering the Atlantic League at Staten Island, but then there's a team in Hagerstown, Maryland coming in in 23. So I don't know if they'll still be there and they'll have to find another 12th team to balance out an unbalanced schedule, but uh, more baseball is never a bad thing, Chuck. That's, that's not, you know, when, when we don't have, um, well, when you and I don't have T-ball battles to attend to, you know, yes. we'll, uh, we'll be, uh, with our kids, that is not with each other. Yeah, clearly. Um, yeah, so we're, we got the Mets and Yankees, the uh, the Dodgers and Angels, and now the the Legends and the Kentucky baseball team. Yeah, the the as, as to be named Kentucky baseball team. I, I went to one game last year. Uh, went to go see. Uh, 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 my wife had won a box for the Legends game in a silent auction. It's, we talked about Ooh. the show before. She's a huge fan of silent auctions much to her wallet's detriment, but uh, got to go see uh, the, the legends play the Lancaster Barnstormers. There you go. And one of the, one of, one of the Lancaster Barnstormers outfielders is uh, actually the son of a guy that my dad coached from the time he was six to the time he was 12, uh, Nick Shumpert, Terry Shumpert's son. So that, that, that sounds cool. like the kind of team we should try out for, actually. I mean, I, they're going to need players, Chuck. So, you know, <laughs> or we are to live in town. They wouldn't have to put us up anywhere. So, you know, it might make, might make sense. Uh, all right. Me, me and my 68 mile an hour fastball take the, Atlantic, <laughs> take the Atlantic League by storm. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's, uh, let's get to, uh, get to some news. And then we'll kind of talk about what you've got going on at the, uh, the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise towards the end. Uh, you know, I want to talk, uh, spend a lot of the podcast today talking about uh, uh, you being an economist, talking about the economy, because there's a, there's a lot going on right now, um, both in the healthcare economy and the, um, you know, the reg- regular old economy. Uh, I guess at the forefront of my mind, uh, because yesterday we, we took uh, our two boys to, over to Walgreens and, uh, and they got, they got vaccinated. So, uh, we got, we got, uh, two vaccinated boys. I'm actually almost as soon as we get done with this podcast, I'm going over to get my booster. My wife gets her booster tomorrow. So we're going to have a whole house as protected as legally possible from, from COVID. Um, you know, you all have done a ton of work, uh, since the start of the pandemic on kind of the, the socioeconomic costs involved and the, you know, where, where the numbers move when it comes to masks, vaccines, public health decisions, you know, in the broader scope of things, what effect do, do, are you all seeing or do you all believe being able now to get five to 11 year olds vaccinated? I mean, beyond the obvious uh, Im- impact on, on people like us that have kids and, and kids in school, you know, what, what's, what are you, what are y'all seeing from the number standpoint on, on, on the expansion of the age? And also, you know, what do you, what effect do you believe that I have on calculations that public health officials are going to make moving forward? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a little too, it's too soon to have real good numbers. I mean, what we do know is sort of the, from, from the, 
And we know the 91% effective in that age group at preventing infection even, right? Which, you know, you tell, and, and of course, pretty much completely effective at preventing major illness, uh, you know, unless someone is extremely old. And by, and, by, the, by the way, I, I love the study. I read a bunch of the study and yeah, there was only like, I mean, it was like 6,000 people and there was only five or six adverse reactions and, right. they weren't, and they weren't adverse reactions to the, to the adverse outcomes. They weren't adverse outcomes to the, to the vaccine. They were, cause they, you know, if somebody stubs their toe, they have to record it during, during the course of the study. Right. And right. One, one, one of them was ingested a penny. <laughs> that's a side of that's a uh well i mean you had someone stick something in your arm you go a little crazy for a while you know you, uh, i've had that happen to one of my kids on one of my baseball teams actually missed a practice because he was just laying down flipping a penny around and right down the esophagus <laughs> and uh you know and and um so that's a surprisingly statistically not as much an anomaly as as you would think it would be um, yeah, so there's a few points that I think are important on this. I mean, so, so number one, we kind of know like the 91% number in five to 11 year olds that just preventing even infection to say nothing of severe illness, which already is low in kids, but, but presumably would go to essentially zero with the vaccine, right? Um, so 91% effective at preventing even infection, even, you know, asymptomatic or very lightly symptomatic infection is, is really outstanding for, for a vaccine. Um, so that's kind of the, the what we do know. What we don't know, though, is, you know, on the ground, what's take up, what's the take up rate going to look like? Because what's ultimately going to happen for public health is going to depend on how many people actually get it. And, you know, we already know the take up rate for adults. It was not, you know, I mean, was not all that close to 100 percent anyway. It's, it's climbed. Right. But. You know, and so there's sort of the personal decision-making standpoint, the family decision-making standpoint, and then there's the policy level, the government policy level. You know, from a personal standpoint, you certainly have got to think the take-up rate's going to be lower than for adults. You know, how much lower, we don't necessarily know, because, but for a couple, I mean, you're going to be weighing costs and benefits, or at least, you know, your prediction of, your projection of costs and benefits. The benefit is lower for kids than for older adults, obviously, because without the vaccine, you know, their rates of severe illness were quite a bit smaller, yeah. right? So if somebody even just thinks this, that, that the risks are the same for an adult and a child, on the margin, you'd be nudged to not vaccinating the kid, right? Um, now, and, and then there's, you know, people when, when their kids are involved with risks, they're, they're going to kind of freak out a little bit, right? A little bit extra usually. So, so my prediction would be that the, the take-up rate is going to be a good bit smaller than even what we've seen for adults. Um, and, and so then the question is, well, how much smaller? I mean, if, if we're talking 10, 20 percentage points smaller, then that's still a major difference in terms of public health. If we're talking about a struggle to get to 20 percent, you know, vaccination rates in this age group, then then we end up in a world that's not a whole lot different than, than what we have at the moment. But so that's the personal decision-making level. On, you know, for me personally, the benefits are, are greater than the costs and, and it's not really all that close um, for, I mean, you guys apparently felt the same way, but, but different people are gonna feel differently there. Um, so that's the personal level. The policy level is where I think it really is, regardless of what the take up rate ends up being, I think it's hugely consequential on the policy level. So here's what I mean. So one of the great things about economics is 
it really gives you a framework for making decisions about when the government should get involved, you know, in, in a way that, that actually kind of clarify, it disciplines your thinking, you know, essentially in a sentence, it's economic efficiency is, you know, is going to be maximized by just staying the heck out of the way unless certain conditions. Well, in the economy, it's almost like a, it's like a, a standardized group. It's like a standard measure across all. Right. Like there, you know, you, it, it, everything, everything winds up going back to a single denominator, which is what what do do the economy. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's, it, and, and we're thinking a little broader than just GDP when we're talking about this, but, but, but the key critical point though, one of, you know, maybe the main reason, the main economic justification for government involvement, for government, you know, intervention into private markets is what we call an externality. Essentially means that the, you know, that if you're the seller and I'm the buyer and we have a transaction, that that transaction doesn't just affect us, it affects people around us, people we don't even know, people we don't even care about, right? And, and, and when you have that, people aren't weighing the costs and benefits appropriately when making those decisions. So COVID at the very beginning was essentially, I mean, I used the expression probably on your show at that time, that, that it was externalities on steroids. Yeah. To mix, mix some metaphors there with baseball, right? But uh, that, that it was, if there's ever a time when externalities are going to justify some kind of intervention, it would be a major pandemic be, because you have one person's actions can ultimately lead to thousands of infections down the line. So that's a major, you know, externality issue. And then, and then reasonable people could disagree about the level of involvement, you know, and how invasive the government should be. But, but it, it opens the door when you're thinking like an economist to doing at least something um, to incentivize less social behavior, essentially, at that time. Now, as va- with vaccines becoming available for kids, that's the end game of the externality argument. Meaning at this point, now, once I guess we've still got zero to four, right? That's the very last piece. Yeah. But once that's there, which won't be too long, it's the end of the externality argument because once vaccines have been available for everyone for enough time that anyone who really wants one could get one, then we switch from a world where we're really concerned that my actions could affect some innocent bystander, you know, across town, right? to a world where we've all made our bets. We've looked at the pros, the cons, we've analyzed whatever we want to analyze. We've made our decisions and, you know, the, the bets are in and now we sort of, we play ball. Right. Um, so the extra, once everyone has access to these vaccines that all but eliminate severe uh, illness or death, you really just don't have that economic argument anymore for really invasive interventions. So that's a subtle but important point, because going forward, what you could have happen, I mean, let's say you only get 20% take up among, you know, young kids on the vaccine. Public health people are going to still be saying, look, the world to us looks a lot the same as it has. Keep the masks on in school, keep, you know, whatever else. Um, An economist is going to look at it very differently and say, well, now there's not externalities anymore. People are making their own private decisions and we need to let that play out, you know. And, you know, that, so the economist is just fundamentally going to look at that. Differently. Well, and, and, you know, and for me, and for me the, the long story short is I think this is really the end game of of, the, of those restrictions, or at least it should be. You know, that, that's where I've always been with. I, you know, I've said all along, I feel kind of bad for Fauci because he gets right. and, and Stephen Stack and all these all these health officials. They've been really done 
wrong by whatever elected official they work for because their job is not to make policy. Their job yeah. is to advise, is to say like, you know, here here is the health decision that can be made to limit uh, l- limit right. spread it, it, to the greatest degree possible. And it's the job of an elected official then, whatever, you know, whatever, yeah. whether you're mayor or governor, it's usually an executive branch position. It's the job of that person to then synthesize that information with information from economists, from job creators, from, you know, all these educators, from all these other groups of people to then look at it and, and, and say, all right, I'm going to come down somewhere in between like yeah. full full health panic and full economic panic and, and <laughs> make make a decision in the middle. And, and you know, I, I, I think the health officials have really been done wrong because they've been pushed out there and given presented as if they are making policy and that's not supposed to be their job. You know, maybe they are because it's been just completely sloughed off to them, but that's not supposed to be their job. It's supposed to be the job. That's of a fantastic officials. point. Yeah, absolutely. It's been like they're Dr. Fauci's job is not to analyze the trade-offs involved with economic activity and, you know, all these, I mean, you know, that, I mean, that's just not his in job. In Fauci's perfect no world, he, he's going to give advice that is zero, yeah. zero spread and zero deaths, zero infection. But and, like, and, and really should stop, you know, even before and just say, here's yeah. if you want this level of spread, here's the package of interventions that the model. Yeah, can say but but that, I mean, the whole role of the elected official is to sit That's above excellent. those people and and, yeah. and synthesize that information as it comes in and, and come somewhere in the middle. So but, but there's really a fallacy for an elected official to sort of sit back and say that. I'm going to listen to the medical people. I'm going to listen to the medical people because that's not, that's not the whole picture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what do you, th- what do you think about the possibility of adding uh, a COVID vaccination to the list of required vaccinations for, for whether it's uh, elementary school or college age, uh, kind of adding that to the, to the MR and, and hepatitis and all the, all the other vaccines that are required. It's a little bit funny isn't it? just because like, People do all of that without even thinking, but yeah, you, know, you, you add this to the list and everyone freaks out. I mean, you know, I think it'd probably be fair to say that, you know, let's get to actual full FDA approval, not emergency use. That well, that's and that that's a I think that's a big difference. I think that's something people right. have to have to keep in mind that, you know, there there's certain limitations on both private industry and governments on what that they can require while it's still emergency use approval. Yeah. And you can sort of read the tea leaves to see where that's going to go. But, but, you know, I, I don't, I don't think just as a matter of principle, I'd sort of go mandate, go the mandate route, unless you're at a full approval. Um, now we already are there for, for adults um, with at least in some cases, but, but the kids, that, that, that'll be a ways down the line. But, you know, once we are there and we've got a little bit of long run data, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I would not have any particular um, bone to pick with doing that. I mean, from the same, again, it's, it, it is, you know, how many diseases have we, you know, you go to measles, polio. I mean, when you go on down the line, do we not even think about anymore because of this? And, and, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have a strong up. I, I, I wouldn't, it's, it's intellectually inconsistent. Let's put it this way to be okay with these other vaccines being mandated and not, yeah this other one right now somebody could have a principled opposition to any mandates for anything yes and you know and, different and, people can and, disagree there but but to to sort of be totally okay with all these others and not the covid one down the line i don't i don't really see that and i and i think the who's doing the mandating is important which will kind of bring uh, me into bring me yeah, into another piece of news point. you know the, from this week that we saw the 
the, the Biden administration's uh, ridiculously over broadly written uh, federal employee and contractor mandate, uh, get, get, get the break, get the brakes put on it in uh, U.S. district court. Obviously, it's going to go to circuit. It's going to go to the Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, I, as far as I know, and, and, you know, I don't know if you know any different. Track, I don't know that there's ever been a Supreme Court case about I don't even know if there's ever been an attempt to make a federal vaccine mandate. You know, all these mandates, every time they, they've been dating back to the Spanish flu era, you know, anytime that these mandates have been uh, put into place, they've either been for f- only for federal direct like W-2 employees right. or right. they've been put, put into place at a state level. Uh, you know, I think that's I, I, I do have a problem with the federal government coming in and doing it because it's just it's not the it's not the role of the federal government to to do that. Um you know, especially after just after talking to lawyers or people who are, who are involved in their own companies trying to put this put this particular mandate into place. It's I mean, it's it's ridiculously written. Like if you have if you have a federal contract and you have subcontractors technically under this under this way, the mandate's written, your your subcontractors are covered by the mandate and have to be have to be vaccinated. It's it's a ridiculously written right. uh, mandate. I, you know, I, I don't know why I almost feel like, Chuck, it was written in a way where they knew it would get struck down and they could and they could use, you know, it was written in a political way. They knew it would get struck down. Then they could say, oh, Republicans blocked us from doing this, thinking that that thing that, that it'll play with the public, because it, no reasonable person who understands law would write it the way that they wrote it. I, just, I don't understand why it went, why they why they didn't just stick with W-2s. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that what you said makes sense. What are you hearing um, what are you hearing from constitutional law people that you talk to? I mean, do, do they? Think- I, there, there's no, there's no, no prayer that this thing's going to stand up. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, I mean, it, with the makeup of the Supreme Court in particular, right? And and, and, there, and there's no precedent to stand on. You know, the, yeah, what they what they talked about as far as precedent is 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 a state law. It's 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 uh, a Massachusetts state law during the Spanish flu era, but it was it was a state law, and that's a huge legal difference: state law versus federal. Oh, absolutely. Well. And, and President Biden's team, of course, would know this all, all along, right? So, so you know, so that does make it sound like a political stunt, right? Yeah. Um, which, which maybe it is. Yeah, I agree with you on the level. I mean, yeah, these things have been done state level in the past, you know, and uh, I mean, the owner, the only reasonable counter argument to that is, well, the disease could spread across state yeah. lines. So you could make an externality argument on a state level that Kentucky's decision, for instance, not to do it would affect Tennessee. But in, in, in reality, that's such a small thing that I, I just, yeah, there's no reason to, you know, I definitely, in, as a matter of sort of principle, would be afraid of that kind of overreach because then, then once that's allowed, to, if that were allowed to stand, now the floodgates open for yeah. what else could Right. Uh, what, what do you think about, you know, from an economist standpoint, one thing I've been talking about in the podcast forever or dating back to before Delta even made kind of became, became the first to make a move this direction. I've always said that, that at the end of the day, localities and the states should stay out of the mandate game because at the end of the day, what's going to end up happening is it's for the first initial COVID hospital stay. It's anywhere from 50 to $70,000. Not to mention, we still don't know. I mean, we're only we think about, oh, COVID's been around forever, but it's like, you know, less than two years. We still don't know the long-term health side effects of this and what the, what the, the long-term health, healthcare economy costs could be. You know, I've always believed that eventually the insurance companies are going to treat COVID, the COVID vaccine, just like they do smoking and say, yeah. if, if 10% of your group policy members are, are not vaccinated, uh, 10% or higher, then, then we're going to hit you with a surcharge. And, 
you know, you can choose whether to pass that on to your employees, pass it on to only the unvaccinated ones required by the, you know, I, we don't care what you do with it as long as we get our money. You know, I, I've always believed that that's the way that's going to end up going. It couldn't go this way or that way earlier because, as we talked about, they were on the emergency use approval uh, list. But, you know, from a from the kind of healthcare economy standpoint, is, is that kind of what what you're what, what the way direction you're you all are thinking it's going to go and, and what impact do you think that's going to have broadly? Well, I don't know how it is going to go. I mean, I can speak to what what I'd recommend. Um, you know, it, it's I Delta already Delta has done exactly. So, so when you're talking yeah. about the insurers, right? The major corporate, the biggest corporations tend to be self insured. Yeah, self insured. That's what Delta Delta said. If you're not yeah. vaccinated, it's two hundred dollars a month. On so Delta doing that is effectively like the insurance company. Yeah. Yeah. So they're Delta already doing that, and and that I that I I don't was wildly successful to beard problem with because we do that. I mean, the ACA already, you know, allows those surcharges for smoking, um, other, you know, private like employer related self-funded benefit plans have very little regulation really compared to, to other things. And um, I, I don't see any issue with what Delta is doing. I mean, I think I think that points to exactly where you were leading. Mandates, you know, again, talking about market failures, right, which is, well, leave, leave things alone unless there are these market failures, and then that cracks the door open for intervention, externalities being the classic case. You know, another phrase we use is sort of minimally invasive intervention and, and, you know, to solve, to correct the market failure. So, I mean, it's no different than if you're a doctor and, uh, you know, if you've, if someone's got heart disease and you have, um, you can do medicine or open heart surgery and get the same results, you know, you should do the minimally invasive yeah. route, right? It's no different really than that. Mandates are really about as strong if they're enforceable, you know, and, and hard, not like the ACA's individual mandate for insurance, which that's a different conversation. But <laughs> if they're, if it's a legit enforceable, like with some bite, I mean, that's a pretty strong, that's a pretty blunt instrument, right? And, and so the question would be, can you get to the same place through gentler carrots and sticks, through incentives? And, and usually, very often, you can't. Like, you know, like cigarette. Do you need to make cigarettes illegal? Well, you know, no, I mean, you, most states tax the crap out of them. And as a result, smoking rates are down, you know, from like 50% to under 20%. You, you know, it's, you can get, you can do things through carrots and sticks. And I'll give an example. Um, and, and this isn't just to kiss up to my bosses, um, but, but, you know, um, at UK, so there was all this debate, we need a vaccine ma mandate at UK. Um, President Capilouto, you know, and, and his team, I mean, you know, I'm sure they discussed all the options, elected against a vaccine mandate, but instead they're, they're doing carrots and sticks. You know, you, if, if you're vaccinated, you're in the pot for basketball tickets, all kinds of other you know, basically prize giveaways, th things with some real value. And then on the other end, on the stick end, if you're not vaccinated, they're just making life real difficult on you. Like you <laughs> can have that private choice, but you have to go get tested every week. You have to upload your documentation, basically making life just difficult enough for you. You know, it's no like, like kind of the NFL is doing, right? Yeah. Like Rogers being the big story this week. Like you've got to follow all this extra stuff if you're not vaccinated. You know, that's more on the employer level. But I mean, the same principle kind of applies, carrots and sticks. Um, the absolute, you know, no brainer from an economics perspective is if you're not, if you're going to make the private choice not to get vaccinated, well, then, you know, smoke, as you said, with smoking health insurance premiums should 
be allowed to be adjusted to reflect the expected risk you're taking on as a result of that choice. You know, so it's not a matter of you don't have a private choice. It's a matter of you, you're, you have to have some measure that, that you're actually paying the social costs of that private choice. Yeah. No, I, it, it, I mean, it's, it's good, you know, and, and honestly, I, I would like to see, you know, one, one mandate that I would like to see that that would be kind of in that same venue that's, that's under, that's under uh, government purview would be if you are on Medicaid, if you, if you accept Medicaid benefits and choose not to get vaccinated, there, there should be, I, I think you should, you should be mandated to be medi- uh, vaccinated if you accept Medicaid, because you're that's, now, now that 50 to $70,000 for that initial stay, that's taxpayer dollars. That's, that's, yep. that's, that's our money you're taking. And if you choose to become, you know, I, it, it sounds nasty to say it like this, but if you choose d- due to uh, personal choice, economic situation, just dumb bad luck, and you choose to become a ward of the state for your health insurance, then I, I think the state then should be able to say, we can't afford to pay for all you people to be in the hospital with COVID. So we're mandating you get vaccinated or you can go find insurance somewhere else. That's a, that's interesting. I'd have to think that, that through in general, I, I tend to be a little resistant to, to mandates, but that's not a mandate just for your being alive. You know? No, it, it's, it, I mean, it, I mean it, it's no, diff- it's, it's no making, different than if it's no different than if you're like a if work interest requirement. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, like having a work requirement on Medicaid or SNAP. Or well, something. And, and it's, it's even less than that, you know, cause I see people yeah. talking about talking about, Oh, you know, we should, we should limit SNAP benefits and drug tests for, for this, that, and the other Well, Now, you know, now you're talking about injuring children, you know, people's yeah. children, because yeah, the, uh, the adult yeah. could be, could be on drugs, but you're going to, no, nobody except for the, the individual themselves gets injured if they choose not to get vaccinated. It's not like, it's not like, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like if I choose to use drugs and I get drug tested and I lose my welfare, that's going to hurt my kids because of the decision I made. If you yep. choose not to get vaccinated, then, you know, you're realistically only hurting yourself, but you're also hurting taxpayers because you you, you had to go to the hospital. So, you know, let's and, let's and limit that, let's limit that cost. Thing, and that's the thing, you know, people tend to miss, right? That, that, and I do believe in personal freedoms, um, you know, to, no, but, I mean, once, but personal once you, freedoms once you, can have personal once, freedoms can have social consequences. And once you rely on the state for a certain once you're once you're relying on the state for a certain amount of benefits. Right. There, there, there's a there's that's a sacrificing of, of, of personal freedoms at some level. I, I think that that sounds reasonable to me. Yeah. I mean, that, I, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But but, you know, in, in any event, though, I mean, the, the miss, I think, is a lot of times well, there are personal freedoms. There should be personal freedoms, but when those personal freedoms have social consequences, then we we should try to get the incentives right and, and without what, taking freedom away. And before before we move on from from COVID, you know, the, the one the one thing that's hanging out there that's that's everybody's worst nightmare is this thing keeps mutating, and yeah. you know, we, and we don't know what the what if the next mutation specifically targets children. Sure. What if, what if you know right now it's well, overwhelming overwhelming number of men who are dying or being hospitalized. Yeah. What, if, what if the next version specifically uh, attacks women? Like we don't know what the next version of this thing That's looks right. like as as it as it evolves. And I think you know that would be be my plea for anybody out there who's who's unvaccinated is to get vaccinated. Is two things. One, it prevents you, uh, or it'll protect you regardless. You know, at least from appearances so far. It offers you a large, large degree of protection, regardless of mutation. But also, the more people who are vaccinated, the less it'll spread, and the, and the less, the less it'll mutate. So we can slow the mutations if we have a higher vaccination pool. So you know, you're mm-hmm. you're doing your part for everybody uh, by by doing that. Yeah, agree um, completely. 
let's let's talk about some other economic stuff. Uh, one of the big bugaboos that I've got because and the problem is people don't understand why it's a problem. The Democrats are uh, bringing are, are going to get rid of the cap that the Trump administration put in, I think, at ten thousand yeah. dollars on salt deductions. Uh, if you don't know what a salt deduction is, that's state and local taxes. And what's essentially happened in these in it's most primarily blue states, primarily coastal states, uh, they have a, they have very high local tax rates uh, and state and state tax rates. Everybody complains about you know state taxes in California or New Jersey or New York. Oh, we pay such high state taxes, and then we pay the federal taxes. And states like Kentucky are just taking our tax dollars away. Well, problem with that is previous to the Trump administration's move. Those those state and local taxes were 100 percent deductible from from your from your federal taxes. So, yeah, it appeared like those people were paying high taxes and, and that they were being then taxed by the federal government as well. But they're getting all that state money back. So it's basically just a, a shell game conning the federal government to pay for out of control spending and stupid tax policies. Now, the Democrats want to bring this thing back in what's essentially a massive handout to to the, these these coastal states that have no. I mean, they were mad because they had no there was no ramifications to the state level taxing and spending decisions they made because they knew they would just get the people, their citizens would get their money back from the feds. So, you know, what give me kind of your thoughts on 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 salt in general and, and kind of how that how that functions. And, you know, what's I mean, realistically, this this is <laughs> this this is a this is this is a handout to, to a few wealthy big blue states, isn't it, Chuck? Yeah. Well, and me, I mean, I would, I'd, I'd, I'd come out a few thousand dollars a year ahead on this. So, well, I mean, but yeah, you know, but I mean, no, our, don't let me stand in the way. But I mean, but, our, but, I mean our, our, but our, our state taxes are here are, are, are low compared to like California, yeah. New Jersey, New York. No, I mean, and, you know, and so you're just incentivizing me to have spent too much on a, on a house, basically. Um, <laughs> the property tax gets up. Right. I mean, but but this is the point, you know, I'm, it's a little tongue in cheek. That, that's the whole point, though. This is so I'll bring it back again, you know, as an economist, a nice thing is you're able to you have a framework for thinking about policy and you can kind of pull emotion out of it and just go right to that framework. What's the market failure that salt deductions are trying to solve? I would assume it's bad. I mean, <laughs> it's not a market failure. It's a political failure. It's, it's right. It's, but the, that, that's these, the these, sta- these states have made poor have made yeah. poor taxing and spending decisions. There, there's no market failure that this thing's trying to solve. It really has no purpose for existing at all. I mean, now you get a, you get rid of it completely, then everyone pays more, so you adjust on rates or whatever you got to do. But I mean, that's the direction the Republicans were moving when when they did this in the first place, right? It's moving yeah. in that direction without going all the way there because that sounds scary, right? But but. Uh, you know, lower the rates, broaden the base that, I mean, which makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, th- this is, this is exactly what it looks like, right? Um, you know, it, it, there's hypocrisy clearly because this is just, just a transfer toward well-off people. It, right? it, it, um, it, it, it just frustrates me when they, when they, people, yeah. these liberals can accuse Kentucky of being a taker state. It's like, dude, so, so, salt, salt yeah. the salt thing is the ultimate of taking like, you're yeah. passing policy that you know won't affect you because you can just take your money back to the feds. Yeah. So you think about so so it's essentially it's it's a it's not a market failure. It's what we call a government failure, which is where you induce an inefficiency that wasn't there to start with. So when you what essentially this does is 
it gives states and, and localities to get property taxes involved. Um, it, it, it adjusts the incentives, it tweaks the incentives to incentivize higher taxes than there would be otherwise. Because to, to whatever extent Kentucky or any state wants to raise taxes, part of that is going to be borne by taxpayers in other states through this mechanism. Yeah. So it essentially just, just distorts the, the, the tax rate decisions um, in, in a way that induces a failure, right? It's not solving a failure, it's, it's causing one. Uh, in terms of the way an economist would think about it. So yeah, it, it's it's what it looks like. I don't think there's, you know, and there are people, I mean, people like give Bernie Sanders some credit. He's called it out exactly for what it is. I mean, you know, there are some people who, you know, I think what it really highlights is the day. I mean, I don't think it, there, there's a ton of deep analysis needed to figure out what's going on. I, I think what it highlights that's interesting is the the dangers of doing things politically on a razor thin margin. Yeah, because basically this is, you know, senators from New Jersey and New York. Well, and they, and they, and they get they get the crap scared out of them two yeah. Tuesdays ago when yeah. Long, Long Island, New Jersey, they saw big swings in, yep. from Biden votes to, to Republican votes. Right. So, so this is but 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 if you can't lose one person, if you can't lose one vote. The a couple of senators from a couple of states who would disproportionately benefit from this can, can hold it hostage. Right. And, and I mean, I think that's really what by, it highlights. By, by the way, I, I will say this, this, this gets back to and, and highlights to me uh, something I've talked about for years, which is if you want to talk, if you want to trace the roots of the acrimony that we have in Congress right now, you can trace it back to the ill conceived decision by the tea party to get rid of the uh, of, of earmarks because yeah. because you, that that's your horse trade that, that was something you could trade you could put into bills to to trade now if you if you need to trade and placate somebody you got to do stuff like this which is bad for everybody it affects the entire economy but yeah. you have you haven't you have there's there's no other chips you can get there's there's nothing there, there's nothing that could be transactional to try to come up with a compromise that's a really interesting perspective it's sort of like a second best type of out you know yeah. Given that horse trading is going to happen and has to happen, you know, do it in the uh, the least. Well, and, and, and to be honest, <laughs> to be honest like, horses. I, I've always said I, I I don't think the problem was was too much earmarking. I think the problem was not enough earmarking. Mm. I, I, I I'd be for nine hundred thousand page budget bills where everything's earmarked. You know, forget forget <laughs> giving the NIH oh, just a blank check for stuff. Yeah. You know, let, let's Congress is supposed to appropriate and spend the money. Let's have Congress appropriate and spend the money. That's their job. Interesting. Uh, but anyway, that's that's a whole other uh, rant. Let's yeah. <laughs> let's kind of, let's kind of stick on the federal economy. Um, for the fourth or fifth time today, there's an article out, uh, Chuck, that the White House uh, economic advisors were surprised by bad economic news. This time, talking about specifically inflation numbers, they were surprised that. Uh, hold on, let me find. Uh, senior White House officials were greatly disappointed by Wednesday's report and surprised at how serious the inflationary problems are throughout the economy. It seems like you know they were also surprised at how low the jobs numbers were. That they were surprised at gas prices. But like at some point in time, don't you say maybe our economic advisors suck, or are they, <clears throat> or, or, or is there just something happening that's kind of blinding economists to the way the numbers are, are moving? There tends to be this short-term bias, um, for lack of a better word. But I mean, economic theory on inflation is is what it's been, and and you know, it's just too much money chasing after too few goods and services, basically. So when you have inflation, 
There's do, either do, too much money floating around or not enough goods and services floating do, around. Do you, do you think this is and, this is kind of artificial inflation caused by the combination yeah. of, of supply chain and, and yeah. the and the, the stimulus packages? Or do you think there's something there's something like significantly cockeyed that's gonna have to gonna have to be fixed? Well, what I mean by the short-term bias here is we've had this easy, you know, feds have these easy money policies really since the Great Recession, very long time. And and uh, everyone Keep, you know, economists included were kind of surprised there wasn't more inflation. And, and so what happens, you start getting 10, 12 years on record of inflation being low, despite easy money policies. And people start thinking the realities, the fundamental realities have changed, that inflation all of a sudden magically is like not a threat, right? But, but it's that recency bias sort of. And, and you know, there, the principle is always there when you have too much money chasing after too few goods and services, it's going to be inflation, just for whatever reason that hasn't sort of seemed to have been the case over the last 10, 12 years, despite relatively easy money policies, which, you yeah. know, for, among other possible explanations, pr- probably means the supply side was working pretty well, right? Um, you know, and, and, but I think that's what you see is like, there's, well, you know, people don't think past the last 10 years. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it's sort of like the, the great the housing crisis of well home prices don't go down it's like of course they could go down if supply <laughs> and demand you know change in a certain way i mean of course they could just because they haven't done what what the the couple decades of data we can observe you know you, you, you so it's it's helpful to have to consider these principles economic principles you know not just look blindly at at a relatively recent time series of data you know because there's always a tipping point right even if the last 12 years you know, certainly macroeconomists are tweaking their models, you know, to, to, to respond to the new newer data and all this, but there's always a tipping point. So, yeah. And, and I think what you have now is you got the same kind of easy money policies, but from the Fed side, but then on the supply side, you've got issues, you've got labor market, you know, you got labor shortages that are well-documented, um, which are going to drive ultimately prices up right on the supply side. And you've got you know, other just these supply chain, yeah, supply chain downs that all of us who've tried to buy something, you know, complicated, um, you know, or, or do any kind of home renovations or anything in the, we, we my, probably all experienced like really weird delays. My, 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 my stepdad's mufflers out on his truck and they, yeah. they told him, they told him it's going to be like eight or nine weeks before they can get the, the new muffler in. Yeah. No, we, we tried to, uh, um, we needed to replace our, di- we needed one simple part on our dishwasher, waited, you know, more months than we should have with hand-washing dishes at our house. Um, and then finally, it's like, well, screw it, this $50 part's never coming clearly. Um, so we're just going to have to buy a new $700 dishwasher. I mean, that's one anecdote, but that's pushing in the direction of higher prices. Right? Well, let's, prices. let's, uh, that's a good way to segue into, into kind of some more local stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. uh you know, there's a story out right now, and and, and I think this this is a Lexington story, but you're going to see it all across the state, especially now that we've got infrastructure money coming in. Uh, it's it's going to be it's I mean I think the infrastructure package, which we'll talk about in a second, is only going to exacerbate this problem. But uh, this headline from the uh, from WKYT: Plan for new middle school in Lexington is now 50 percent over budget. Uh, <laughs> this is the new middle school they're building out in Hamburg, off a of polo club. Uh, it was it was originally budgeted. At uh, about oh, it's not in this story. I think it was in the Herald Leader story. I think it was originally budgeted at about like tw- uh, twenty something million million dollars. It's now uh, twenty three million more than planned. 
Uh, and of that, uh, there's a 12.6 million increase in just materials cost. Ooh. And the entire budget, the entire project is now 52.4% over budget from, uh, from last year, uh, for what, what, what they had saw when they, when they approved it. So the shine they've, they've, voted the uh, school board members of Fayette County decided to give themselves a bit more time before making the decision to proceed with the bids or to put out plans for school uh, or to put plans on hold. They're trying to, to decide how to deal with it. But, you know, we get this, this uh, massive infrastructure project just got approved federally, which needed, which needed to be done for quite some time. I mean, it's, Ooh. it's, you know, our infrastructure is legitimately crumbling uh, literally in, in some cases, such as the Brent Sprints bridge, uh, but I mean, I have to imagine that you're going to see more stories like this, uh, not not just because of the way that supply chain is, but now you're now you're injecting an, almost a billion dollars in into infrastructure projects that are going to be competing for these same sorts of sorts of materials and labor. That's a great point. Yeah. You, so it, these the competition for labor is going to be more localized. Yes. Right. So it'd be a matter of you know, how many, how are these projects distributed geographically? But, um, but I mean, you, you, you watch union labor and I mean, there's plenty of union labor that, that, that will drive hundreds of miles for that, for that union contract. So the materials I mean, thing is a great point though. Yeah. I, I mean, both of these are, yeah. So, so certainly, but, but this is something, I mean, I'll, I'll pull it back to, to, to my own research area. Just, you see this stuff. This isn't the first time this sort of things happened. Um, the ACA, so Obamacare, um, all of a sudden, basically overnight, 20 million people have insurance. Well, what does that mean? 20 million people are going to be buying more medical care than they were before. Well, what's that going to mean? What's that going to do? Do we think that, I mean... How do we service them? Yeah, I mean, so, so you're going to have shortages. And if you don't, uh, you're going to have shortages and or higher prices with something like this. In the medical case, I mean, it, then... You, you have to deal with, well, if all of a sudden you need more doctors, you need more nurses, you need more hospitals, these aren't things that happen overnight. So you have these, these shortages, these slow, like I had one research study a few years ago looking at that, that was finding ambulances arrive slower on the scene as a result of Obamacare. Um, because there's just more people calling 911 because they got insurance now. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know, and then we were documenting it was coming from relatively minor things that probably didn't need an ambulance call. Right. So you're clogging that. Anyway, that so so that's the, the point is just that this is sort of a maddening trend. We don't policymakers don't really seem to think about the what's going to be happening on the supply side when you sort of just inject tons of new demand all at once. I mean, so you have a you have a great point there, and and you know, I, I wonder. I'd have to see how long. I might hope that these projects are spread out over time in a way that, that, you know, that, that they're not all literally starting all at the same time. So it would sort of depend how that shakes out exactly. Um, and, you know, hopefully, I mean, these things are so clunky to get going, you know, hopefully the supply but, chain But, but remember, remember that, Chuck, at the, but, at the same time, you've got all this uh, America Cares Act yeah. that, that's been injected that most, most localities are putting into things like broadband and larger mm. water and sewer projects, you know, mm. think things that they, that they can spend a one-time expenditure on that that's a project that's been on the wish list that they haven't been able to afford. So, I mean, not only do you have this infrastructure project, but you still have that money that, that, you know, Kentucky's only appropriated about half of the, half of their yeah. uh, CARES Act money. So, you know, you, you've got, I mean, there's a lot of federal money being injected into 
construction projects essentially. Right. And I mean, there's only so many people to work on it. There's only so much material to go around. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you, you need workers and, you know, there are these labor shortages, which don't, which really are a little bit of a puzzle for economists at the moment, honestly, um, because, you know, the, the, the natural reaction is, well, we were paying people, you know, in some cases more not to work than to work, you know, the unemployment benefits, but there's enough data now on that, those being rolled off and the, the yeah. labor force participation not really coming back. So it's something deeper. And, and so I've resorted to the, uh, to the brilliant data collection method of actually talking to people. Um, and, and, you know, so it's anecdotal, but I mean, the one thing you sort of tend to hear when you talk to service people and, and everybody always is like apologizing for how long your wait was, you know, because they, they're understaffed. And so I'm always like, well, you know, what's going on? Like, uh, what, what's your experience been here? Like, why are people not wanting to work? You know, that kind of thing. And inevitably, I, mean, I don't know what you hear, but what I tend to hear is just some aspect of, you know, people just sort of got used to not working and kind of don't really want to, they kind of liked it, <laughs> and they, <laughs> you know, and they're just done. They're kind of going to drain down whatever they, they can and wait till the last possible moment to jump back in, essentially. You know, Attica Scott's filed a bill uh, in the General Assembly. It's not going to go anywhere. And it's and mm. knowing Attica, it's not going to be written the way that it could be for it to actually be a, a a plausible solution but you know I, i've come around on on yeah i'm 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 pretty close to joining the yang gang here on on the ubi yeah. on the uh, uh universal basic income yeah. uh, you know if you especially when you when you look at we spend about 10 billion dollars a year on just the administration of all of these different welfare and social service uh, uh programs if you were to eliminate everything except for except for medicaid and medicare get rid of all the rest of it and just cut every american a check yeah. A, you'd be saving $10 billion, just boom, right there off the top. Uh, but then, you know, the people that just, God bless them, don't want to work. All right, fine. They, you know, they got their check. Uh, but you you and I are going to get our check too. Um, and, I mean, I just, I, the more the more I look at it and the more I think about it, you know, if you just do a whole, and I don't think structurally you could ever do it. It would never work. We're, we're so far gone on it. I don't think you could ever just pull, you know, pull the trigger and flip systems. But, you know, and from a theoretical standpoint, you know, the idea of replacing the entire welfare economy with universal, universal basic income is kind of a kind of an attractive, uh, kind of an attractive uh, a policy idea. Well, the, the longer you study social programs, which, you know, is a big part of, of what I study, um, you know, doing especially health related ones. The, the more you're kind of just like, wow, this is such a tangled. I mean, I like literally health insurance is one of my main expertise as a researcher. And I have trouble navigating, like, you know, in terms of our family, right? Yeah. Navigating health insurance, like bills, and there's random bills that come out of nowhere you weren't expecting. And, you know, you have one hospital, outpatient hospital stay, and there's seven different bills arriving over months and, and trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Like, and, and I mean, but you get into all these different programs, it's like that. It's, it's you know, all of the rules and what what is it? And then again, when you talk to people, like, and, and that's something, it's very easy to stay in your office if you're kind of a policy wonk and, and do the calculations and be like, all right, if we tweak this or if we invented this program, people should, you know, really talk to people more. Like, it, the people who 
would actually qualify for a lot of these programs tend to not even know about. Them. Well, you, look at look at them. look at when uh, Steve Bashir did did uh, the connect and and, and yeah. the Medicaid expansion. You know, right. the great the great success there was not the people in the expansion. It was they looped in hundreds of thousands of people who didn't who who had always been eligible for Medicaid who didn't know Woodwork they were eligible. Yep. Yeah, yeah, the woodwork effect. Yeah, and and we've got co-authors and I have some a few studies looking at. It wasn't just people who were, it was also people who really were never eligible who were sneaking on in. Yeah. Um, no, you're going to have that in every Not place. just in Kentucky, by the way. And, and, by, and, by, well, and by the way, that, that's that's another problem with all these welfare things that, right. that's eliminated with UBI. There's no, there's yeah, no, so welfare, think, there's no welfare fraud when everybody gets that check. I think, you know, so, so what's the, the counter argument to UBI that, that you typically are going to hear is that, well, you know, if somebody can't, you know, can't regulate their own life choices, then you just give them a check and they're going to blow it all yeah. on crap in the first couple of days. And then they'll still need the food assistance and they'll still need the other stuff down the line, you know? And I mean, I don't know, I guess that's, but, but I think more people would, would actually think, regulate their life. Than, I would think than, you go hungry than, one month. Than you're, 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 you're running yeah. out of money on the 15th, one month. You're probably not going to do it the next month. Yeah, I think the academic <laughs> circles tend to really, overestimate how much smarter they are than regular people you know? <laughs> like you know people... hunger's a hell of a motivator chuck <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think you know people would figure this stuff out eventually for the most part and you know so i but i think the problem i think theoretically i'm probably with you i mean the except i think that the dollar amounts you'd have to spend at, what I would there, there's ways to do this within the tax code, like where you could effectively do UBI, but gradually phase it out with income, you know, and and just sort of a transfer. I mean, type of thing where see, I, I've I've got the, an idea for kind of a hybrid UBI, uh, a hybrid UBI yeah. consumption tax, where you know just on. Uh, on income tax. Uh, uh, yeah, on, on January one, everybody gets a check for whatever, for what, you know, what, whatever, whatever the previous year's uh, poverty line paid, like in total for sales tax for the whole year. January right. one, everybody, everybody gets a check for that amount, and then you know, there's no income tax, you know, none, none of that stuff, and, and you, you you get that check on the first, and that covers your, or I mean, you can space it out for for twelve months, however you want to do it, and then uh, you know, that's that's your, that's that's the number for the year. Yeah, and then and then you could you could raise tax rates at the higher end so that effectively that makes it that takes it back away from wealthier people. But you, those are the kind of math you have. If you just keep everything constant and just drop however many thousand times three hundred and fifty million people, you know this is not feasible. So you have to have some way, <laughs> like I said, to, to, it's, to target it, it a little bit. It's a but, good economic but, theory. <laughs> no, no, but the, but the other the, the thing is, yeah. I, so if there are ways to do this negative income tax. There's ways to, like you said, you give everyone a check once a month and then just, and then compensate on the other end by making the tax rates more progressive so that people who don't really need the UBI essentially end up even um, from, from that trade. There are ways to do this that aren't really that hard. The, the challenge is all the, as you said, in practice, if we tried to do you, you do a UBI, the way it would end up is it would just be thrown on top of all the other stuff. Yeah, they, yeah, the other which, stuff wouldn't go away. Yeah, so now and it's that's just, what are you doing? Which, you know? which that that's the worst of all scenarios, right? <laughs> like right. But but no, I mean it's certainly like you know the uptake. We, we talk about I talked about take up rates a little earlier for vaccine. That's really a term for for these social programs. The take up rates are just abysmal for social program. Like SNAP, you know, you know. Uh, um, 
did a study of a snap on seniors and you're talking about 50 percent take up rates yeah. amongst among seniors for basically free food like that's about as easy a program to sign up for as there is um you know among younger people it's more than that but it's not near 100 medicaid can it tends to be tends to run about half of pre-aca as you said then you got into some woodwork effect but um but yeah i mean you know how if the argument against a UBI type of thing is, well, these programs are targeted better. Well, they're not targeted that well when half the people who really need the benefits don't sign up for them. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so it, it really, yeah, the, the longer you study it, the, the more you're just like, well, this is a convoluted mess. Um, how, how could anyone who, you know, then you start picturing like a single mom high school degree, four kids. And you're like, how the heck is this person supposed to navigate this stuff? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, it just, yeah. I, I mean, it really is kind of, but, but again, you know, UBI makes sense in principle, but you'd really have to then get rid of this other stuff and yeah, no. how, how you get there. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's so built up. Um, yeah. Let's uh, a couple of just kind of quick yeah. one hit items. Before we get out of here, uh, focus a lot on on broader issues, but let's run through. I uh, want to run through something to do probably every week between now and whenever the filing deadline ends up being, because uh, there's actually Spectrum News is a piece up where uh, the uh, Speaker Osborne said they hope to have the map drawing wrapped up pretty soon, and then it's up to the governor to call a special session to do redistricting. Uh, so whenever whenever redistricting comes, if it's during session, they're gonna have to push the filing deadline back. Uh, but until then, I'm gonna I'll keep updating on filings for uh, for, for uh, state and federal offices. A couple interesting ones over the last week. Kim Holloway uh, has filed a run in the second house district, uh, which is uh, held by Richard Richard Heath, who's also running for ag commissioner. Um, you know, I hear rumors that that district may get split up in two, so Kim and Richard may both be able to serve. Um, they live in distinctly different parts of the county. Uh, but that's got it's an interesting filing. If it does end up being kind of the old map, that's that's uh, going to be a heck of a barn burner of a primary. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, last week, Chuck, we had uh, we had George Washington file for Congress against Thomas Massey. Uh, this Ooh. week, this week we have we have Robert Duvall filing for state house in the seventeenth. So always like a good. When's Trey Watson going to get in the mix? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Turpin, who is a political science professor, who actually endorsed and appeared in a campaign video for Tom Birch uh, up in Louisville uh, last election, has fought against Tom Birch. Tom Birch is the longest serving member of the General Assembly currently. Uh, also, Chuck, he had one of my favorite uh, bills ever. It wasn't actually a bill, it was a resolution. Uh, but he, he once introduced a resolution, I want to say it was in 2001 maybe, uh, that the uh, and I usually post it on Twitter at the beginning of every, every General Assembly session, but he f- filed a bill that the state of Kentucky should buy Louisville USS Louisville class submarines to torpedo uh, casino boats uh, trolling the the waters of the Ohio River uh, to keep there. I think and I think I think the phrase was the like Calliope siren song of casinos or something like that. But yeah, he had a resolution to buy uh, to- buy submarines to torpedo casino boats. Um, <laughs> uh let's see there's Sounds a rematch. entertaining i guess yeah there's a rematch the, movie. rematch the 81st district uh listener to the podcast martina jack uh, jackson from uh from richmond is filed again to run against deanna frazier uh the incumbent state rep it's the uh, richmond madison county based seat uh you know it's pretty republican leaning uh and then you got you know kind of a host of incumbents not really many surprises in the state house yet 
Uh, only one uh, incumbent congressman has, has officially filed for re-election. That's Brett Guthrie. Uh, he's starting a couple of Democrats for that. I mean, that's uh, people. People don't I, don't. I don't think realize this because they think, oh, you know, far east or far west. But the second district actually is the highest percent uh, Trump voting district uh, in, in congressional district in Kentucky. So, uh, you know, that's uh, kind of interesting. Uh, I'm looking to see if there's any other filings of interest. We're uh, we're up to. Let's see here. We got. I'm looking at the state supreme court. Uh, which a majority of the court is up this year. You got Shane Nichols filed in the first, Kelly Thompson in the second, uh, Angela Bissig in the fourth, and Michelle Keller, who's uh, an incumbent, in the fifth. So no big breaks there yet. Uh, so you know, as, as those numbers start to trickle in, uh, we'll, uh, we'll 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 update you on the podcast. Uh, you know, they don't have the local filings listed next year's local filing year. Uh, I do know. Uh, starting to see some stuff come in. Mike Buchanan, longtime county judge in Warren County, a uh, friend of mine, a uh, really, really good guy. He's decided not to run again. Uh, so that's uh, kind of a, a mainstay of the uh, uh, Kentucky fiscal court scene. County judges uh, will, will serve as last year in office next year and uh, former podcast guest and and, uh, and uh, a good friend, uh, Judge Mosley down in Harlan County has filed for for uh, for reelect, which will be his first in switching parties from uh, Democrat to Republican. So uh, should be a uh, should be a good race down there for him as well. Uh, like I said, we'll we'll update as, as those things roll in. A uh, uh, quick quick up quick hit on the COVID numbers before I let Chuck plug the institute. Um, you know, this is uh, the first time in, a, in I think September, Chuck, that we've had three days in a row of of the seven day rolling average being an increase in COVID numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of any, any concern from your all's world and, and looking at research that we might be, I know, cause I know the numbers are up big in the, uh, Pacific Northwest and, and, and kind of mountain West area. Um, and there are, they actually spiked again in France as well. It's hard to make a whole lot of, of th- just a few days. Um, you'd want to, you know, th- these things just, they, they they ebb and flow. You know, I'll say this too, Chuck. I, I see, you know, on Twitter, it's like, oh, you have, you know, literally week to week, it's like Ron DeSantis has been the best governor in the country. Right. You know, and Ron DeSantis the is the worst governor in the country. It's a freaking virus. It's a virus, yeah. man. Everybody's been hit by it. It's just yeah. when you've gotten hit, it's been different. If, I wish people would right. stop freaking out that like, oh, look at how low Florida's numbers are this month. Look at how low California's numbers are this month. No, like they're going to go up and down. It's the way a virus works. And, and there are times the reporting is just not, yeah, lighting up. I mean, somebody, some major lab somewhere. Well, like you know, Kentucky, we're, we're double. Was double report. Well, know? we were, we were double counting our vaccination rate right. uh, yeah. at, at Kroger's, you know, and we we dropped like seven yeah. <laughs> percent. And and uh, you definitely see that when you work with the data, like anything in particular daily, but even weekly, and you look like at a county level or some disaggregated, you'll see like, oh, cumulative COVID cases went down this week. Well, that's in by by like twenty percent cumulative. Yeah. Meaning like, like uh, people who, people, you know, people magically, we went back in time and they didn't get it. Right? <laughs> so, you know, not, not new cases, but total cumulative cases. And, and so of course that's nothing but a data error. And then it's like, well, which one was wrong? Was the old number wrong or the new number wrong? So you really, there's enough kind of, kind of noise in the system that uh, even, even just on the data end, right. Even before you start talking about the actual virus, um, you know, to say nothing of testing trends, right. I mean, if, because yeah. a lot of times numbers, if if for whatever, like a new testing, new major testing facility opens somewhere, uh, or or like there's how, more how many there's... how many days do you think needs to go for the numbers 
uh, increasing or decreasing for it to become kind of a statistically relevant streak? Um, you definitely don't go by the day because, because again, there can be, yeah, like Mondays are usually a low day, like because labs don't report on that day or they don't report a Sunday, you know. You definitely have to go at least weekly, weekly aggregates, first of all, to mean anything. Um, I mean, I'd probably be looking for, you know, almost a month before I'm really seeing a trend. But then the, then the trick is, though, then once you've realized there's a trend, well, the cat's out of the bag. So yeah. You, can't, yeah, you can't go back. I mean, the useful data are always going to lag the activity. You can't, you can't kind of feature cast a little bit. Right. So, so it's like, even if after a month you're like, oh crap, we got a problem. It's like, well, that, that, that ship has sailed, you know, (laughs) you can't, you can't go back a month and make different policy choices. But I mean, really, again, this is why I think at the end of the day, rather than overreacting to numbers, having some economic principles of of government intervention are really helpful, right? Because it becomes more than just a matter of just sort of playing whack-a-mole with the numbers, but but becomes about about well okay well do are there market failures in operation here that we need to be worried about yeah or, or are there not and and sort of the why behind the numbers a little bit more you know and again I, I'd see that case being much stronger back you know April 2020 than November 2021 yeah um, yeah so I I don't know and unless they and you do have to look at test run positive rate I mean that's why you know Dr Stack the you know, the team, they're looking at a bunch of different indicators, not just cases. Um, you're looking at death rates. And, and, so and even, and even, you know, I've talked rates. about the podcast where even hospitalization rates are, are hard, are hard to figure out because, you know, it's anecdotal, but talking about talking to my wife, you know, there, there's a, you have a, a not insignificant number of patients in some of these rural hospitals who, who are for intents and purposes, brain dead. And they've been in there, right. but they, the, the families won't sign a DNR and there's no way to test, to, to give an apnea test. Cause the minute you take them off the vent, they crash, you got to put them back on the vent. So, you know, you do have, you know, uh, some population occupying both vents and hospital beds that are, you know, realistically have passed away. <laughs> so, but they're, they're keeping our, our, some of our hospitalization numbers artificially high. And, and, and that, that also drags down the effect, the numbers on effectiveness of the vaccines, right? Cause a lot yeah. of people are vaccinated. So they're going to show up as COVID deaths with the vaccine. Yep. So, you know, and, and really it's like, you got multi-organ failure. I mean, you know, yeah. Um, all right. Well, a chunk, a plug, yeah. I know, I know you got at least one event coming up, uh, plug yeah. anything else you want to plug for the Institute. Yeah, well, everyone. So, um, so the name of the institute is the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise. So, we encourage any your listeners follow us Twitter and Facebook. We're UKISFE at both, and then our website is isfe.uky.edu. Kind of keep track of our research, our events, um, and uh, and. Coming up next Wednesday is our last public event of the Wednesday, the 17th of the fall semester. And um, it should be a really, uh, a really cool event. It's, um, it's, a, it's an economist. Well, events with economists, you know, the, Woo! it can be, can be a little party. dry, but this one should be fun. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, his name is Brian Blaze. He was a leading health policy advisor for the Trump administration. So it's really going to be kind of kind of war stories on efforts to repeal, replace, improve the Affordable Care Act. 
Um, so it'll be it'll be some policy wonkishness, but also some some kind of inside baseball. So so that should be really fun. Um, and that's that is a hybrid event at, at five o'clock. So it is, you know, for those listening across the state who aren't going to make a, a trek into Lexington, um, you can just go to our website, sign up, and um, and just just hop in on Zoom, and and listen that way. Um, and, and also the, the video will be up a few days after the event. So, so you can watch it that way as well. Um, but you know, our website and our social media will have all those details. All right. Well, Dr. Chuck Cordemanch, thank you for coming back on the show. And, uh, all right. Thank you, Trey. Always sure, good to we'll, see you. Yeah. We'll see it. We'll see it at the ball fields here in the spring. Right. Uh, as will. always, you can get Kentucky politics weekly, wherever you stream podcasts. If you get us on Apple podcasts, please be sure to give us a review and wherever you stream, please be sure to give us a follow. So you get the uh, notification when a new show goes live and uh, we'll be back next week with another Kentucky politics weekly.